as begins. If anyone else doesn't want to hear me preach, now's the time to go. You can pretend you're on crash or whatever, that's cool. Well, good morning to you all. It's fantastic to see everybody here today. Lots of people who I ha- haven't met before. Seems like when we go away, the church grows, so we're just going to go away for another three months, if that's okay. Uh, other elders, yeah, we'll, we'll do that, and it might grow again. It's, it's really great to see you, and it's really great to have you folks here again. Uh, Claire and I really want to say a massive thank you to all the folks who enabled it, uh, made it possible for us to have a sabbatical, um, particularly those who covered key roles, particularly Joel and uh, Paul and Keith. Um, we've had a great three months. We've been doing a load of theological studies. We've been um, had a holiday, and uh, we almost managed to meet up with uh, Mark and Jean, who were in Vancouver at the same time. We just, just kind of missed. Um, we went to a lot of churches as well. We, we visited different churches each Sunday. We actually went to a total of seven different churches. Uh, some of them we went to for three or four weeks. Some of them we only went to once. And uh, it, it was great. And it was fascinating just visiting different churches around the Northeast and in Canada as well. Uh, we, even, we even heard Terry Virgo. Those of you who've heard of Terry Virgo, he was preaching at one of the churches we were at in Canada, which was great. And it was fascinating just to see how different churches do things. It's kind of like going to different families and just seeing how they do things differently, you know? And uh, just seeing the different sort of focus that different churches put on uh, different things and emphasize different things in the way that they kind of run their services. But whilst it was great to go to other churches, it really is good to be back here at Regent. It's great to see you all. Well, most of you, anyway. Um, (laughs) Really good to be back. And we've we've really missed uh, being here at church. And actually, it's kind of a weird thing, particularly the first four weeks we were in different churches. It's actually really unsettling because you go to a church, you don't know anybody, and it's a real insight for us. It's helpful for us just to see what it's like turning up at church for the first time and just seeing how different churches welcome you and so on. Just before we went on sabbatical, Daniel Monk uh, asked me to look out for any good songs that I came across when we were in other churches. And uh, with a kind of aim that maybe we could do them here at Regent. So there were certainly a few that I picked up. I thought, yeah, that, that, that could work. Some wouldn't work at Regent. Um, some would work at Regent. And I've kind of got a few that hopefully I'll feed those back to Daniel and maybe they'll appear in the band's repertoire over the next few months. And it, it was fascinating to see just the kind of range of songs. And I guess it's the same here. We've seen a complete range of songs, don't we? Um, as, as we were in different churches, different styles of church, and just the kind of full range of songs. Some of them were really old hymns and some brand new songs and then kind of everything in between. Some were packed full of kind of rich theological statements uh, and truths, kind of Stuart Townend kind of stuff. Others were expressing deep emotions to God. And there were some real kind of songs of commitment as well. Some of them were based on passages of the Bible that were just kind of lifted out and put to music. Some of them were from Psalms in the Bible. And it was just great to be able to have those different kinds of songs and, 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 and hymns to be able to connect with God and worship Him through. One of the features of older hymns is that they can often be sung to a variety of tunes, whereas modern songs only fit one tune, and if you try and sing it to another song, it's an utter disaster. The church I grew up in when I was a kid, we would quite often, sometimes people would give a song out in a kind of open time of worship, and then they would say, can we sing 478 to the tune of 654? And the poor old person who was kind of doing the music that day had to sort of suddenly switch to a different tune and hopefully they knew that tune and it wasn't a complete disaster it often was but can you imagine what that must be like kind of having that sprung on you uh, lucy probably can uh, uh, kind of empathize with that in, in some way or other the people of israel had a hymn book a song book that they used and it, it was called the psalms and it's, it's in the bible there's 150 of them 150 songs they're, they're, they're poems it's full of poetry 
and it's in the Bible. And in fact, Jesus and the disciples and people like the Apostle Paul would have grown up singing the psalms that we have in the Bible as they went to the synagogue on a Saturday and as kind of part of their worship services, no doubt recited them and, and got to know them. And the Bible, in fact, tells us that the night that Jesus was crucified, or, or the night before he was crucified, after the disciples had been in the upper room and he'd had uh, you know, bread and wine with them, they went out, and the Bible says as they went out, they sung a hymn as they went out to the Mount of Olives. And apparently that hymn would have been the Psalms 113 to 118. It's called the Great Hallel. Well, today we're going to look at another psalm that Jesus would have sung, certainly on some occasions we've probably been familiar with and would have grown up with, and it's Psalm 60. seems that just like some of our old hymns, the Jews also had different tunes that they liked to put with psalms. Because the instruction at the beginning of this psalm, of Psalm 60, is it says that it's to the tune of the lily of the covenant. Now, I have no idea what the tune, the lily of the covenant, sounded like. And even if I did, I wouldn't sing it for you. Stuart might attempt that. Stuart would probably get away with it. I wouldn't. Now, we're looking at some of the psalms here uh, over the summer period at Regent. And we're going to be doing that until the end of August. And today we're looking at Psalm 60. And at first glance, it's a bit of a strange psalm. Some of the psalms are kind of strange to us as we look at them with our kind of Western mindset and you know, two, three thousand years divorced from that time. Like all the Psalms, it's a poem, it's packed full of poetry, it's packed full of images and kind of word pictures and, and so on. And it's important to remember that, that, that when we read the Psalms, they're not kind of propositional truths like the epistles in the New Testament are. These are poems, it's poetry and it's capturing something of what the person who wrote it was feeling and was experiencing at that point or perhaps at some point after the, the event and they, they kind of put a poem together, a poetry, a piece of poetry to kind of capture what they had experienced in the past. And it's all kind of deep and raw emotions sometimes as you um, read through the Psalms. And, and lots of the Psalms, and this one's no exception, are windows into the hearts of the authors. And as we look through the kind of window of their soul into their heart, we, we, we find ourselves sometimes identifying with the author. We can see some of the, 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 the emotion, the pain, the, the joy, the faith, the, the struggles that they're having. And, and often where we're at in, in life sometimes connects, doesn't it, with just what they were experiencing at that time. We connect with their pain, perhaps their questions, their struggles, their, their praise, their faith, and all sorts of other emotions. And, and Psalm 60 is very much like that. So we're going to read Psalm 60. I'm going to ask Emma Monk. Uh, she can come up and, and read it for us. So thanks, Emma, if you want to come up and read that for us. If you want to turn in your Bible, if you've got one, and, and Emma will read it. Thanks, Emma. You have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry, now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand, and those who love may be delivered. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph, I, I will parcel out Shem and measure a valley of Sukkoth. Red is mine and Mesa is mine. Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. On Edom I will cast my sandal. Over Philster I shout in triumph. You, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? It is not you, God. You who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies. Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. With God we shall gain the victory, 
and he will trample down our enemies. Thanks, Emma. That's great. So this psalm was written by King David, and, um, and uh, he was the greatest king of Israel. And he reigned in uh, Israel from 1010 to 970 BC, and he wrote lots of the psalms, not all of them, but quite a lot of them. And he wrote this one about some events that took place in the middle of a big military campaign that you can read about. And I put it on your outline. You there's an outline next to you. If you want to uh, make use of that, you can do. All the verses will be on there, and there's one or two things to fill in if you want to use that. And it, everything will be up on the screen as well. And as you note there on the outline, it says that this was during uh, a, a military campaign that took place, and you can read about it in Second Chronicles, uh, in, in, in 1 Chronicles 18 and 2 Samuel 8. And in the midst of this big military campaign that these passages record, David, it seems, suffered some kind of military setback. And it seems that while he was busy uh, trying to uh, defeat the enemies of Israel up to the northeast of Israel in, in what would be kind of modern-day Syria, the country was then invaded in the southeast by the Moabites, who were also the enemies of Israel. Everybody, and nothing's changed, has it? Everything, everybody around Israel was trying to destroy Israel, and, and nothing changes. And, and this psalm captures something of the heartache and the pain that David experienced and I guess he was sort of speaking really on behalf of the whole nation and as he uh, was kind of experiencing these heartaches this psalm is a bit of a window it kind of captures how he was feeling he probably wrote it after the event but as you look back this reflected something of his experience and it's kind of like a window into his heart and we see David's struggles and we see the reality of what it was like for him to live through this David says this, he says, You have rejected us, O God, and burst forth upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You, you've shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures for its quaking. You've shown your people desperate times. You've given us wine that makes us stagger. David was busy leading the country to victory when suddenly everything went horribly wrong and the country was invaded from the southeast, kind of behind their back. And, and the land of Israel was ravaged by these invaders. David uses the kind of language that someone in the Ukraine, I guess, might use today about what has been happening to them uh, with the uh, Russian army invading them. And he says the people are staggering about as if they're drunk because they're in, they're in just such shock at what's happening to them that they just can't make sense of the events that are happening in their life. And as, as far as David was concerned, anyway, it, it, it seemed to him that God had rejected him. God had rejected Israel. How could it be anything else when all that was happening was going on? This is what it seemed like to David. It seemed to him like God was judging Israel. And we don't know why these events happened, but that was how David saw things. To him, it just seemed like everything was a mess. David it just felt like God had abandoned him. God had rejected him. And maybe David knew things that we don't. We're looking at it from 3,000 years on. David perhaps had an insight and perhaps was aware of something that had gone wrong, some kind of sinful behavior that maybe he or, or, or the nation of Israel had been involved in. And that's why he felt this way. Maybe it was that God was punishing them for, uh, for doing something that they shouldn't have been doing. But we just don't know that. As we peer in through the window, though, of this psalm into David's heart, what we find is a man who's desperate. This is a man who is hurting and a man who's really conscious of his own weakness. And maybe this morning, as you read this psalm, you sort of kind of identify with some of the things that David records and captures there. Maybe you identify with David to some degree this morning. You might not be leading your nation in a war. I guess that's kind of obvious. But maybe you feel like you're in the middle of a battle yourself right now. You're in the middle of your own little war in your life. Or maybe that's been your experience recently. Maybe you feel like you're in 
right there in the heart of a battle yourself in your family, in your workplace, in your uh, job or in your situation. Maybe it seems like God has rejected you. You know, it's like it seems like God's abandoned me and, and, and God's run away and just left me. Maybe it seems like God is angry with you even. It feels like you're shaken and, and torn open, to use the words of David here. Your, your life is fractured and everything is just kind of quaking and is a mess. And, and, and maybe that's kind of how you've been feeling or maybe you are feeling this morning. You feel like you're staggering around like a person who's drunk on, on bad wine, unable to make sense of what's going on in your life. And, and the reality of life is that even if you don't feel like this morning, and, and if you don't, that's wonderful. I'm sure that everybody feels like that. But if you don't feel like that this morning, you will have done in the past, and you almost certainly will do again in the future, because that's sadly the reality of life, isn't it? We're in a messed up world where bad things happen. There can be a whole variety of reasons and, and, and factors behind the problems that we face. And, and we should always be careful before we sort of rush in to jump to conclusions as to why what is happening to us is happening. It, it's good to take time to pray and ask God for a clearer sense of what is going on. And, and maybe seek the wisdom of other godly and, and, and mature Christians and just get, a, get, a, get some input. You know, why do you think this is happening? When it comes to those around us, we need to be really, really careful before we rush in and make judgments. Oh, well, the reason this, is, this bad stuff's happening to that person is because of X, Y, and Z. You know, things are rarely as straightforward as they seem, uh, and, it, and it's a wise person who doesn't judge others or, or kind of make snap judgments about other people's situations. We, we need to be really careful not to jump to wrong conclusions, especially about other people, but also about our own lives. We don't always know the big picture. Things are rarely as straightforward as they seem. David and the nation of Israel were experiencing all kind of problems, but despite what David thought, we don't really know what was happening. David kind of gives his take on it. This is how he felt. We don't know. And sometimes bad things happen to us because of our own sin. We don't know whether that was the case in Israel or not, but certainly can be the case. Sometimes bad things can happen in our own lives because of our own sin. You know, sin produces more sin. Sin begets sin. If I sin, I shouldn't be surprised that I then end up in, a, in kind of more sinful situations. If I, uh, for instance, if I end up you know, ending up in prison because I've stolen something, I've been dishonest, I shouldn't be surprised that bad things happen to me in prison because I've ended up in prison. That's kind of what happens. Sin leads to sin. Bad stuff causes bad stuff to happen. It's not like God is punishing us as such. It's just that when we play with fire, we get burnt. If we mess around with stuff that we shouldn't mess around with, we shouldn't be surprised when our lives end up in a mess. Sometimes bad things happen to us because God is disciplining us. If, if we've trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then we become God's children. And that is magnificent and it's wonderful and it's amazing, isn't it? That we are adopted and we become God's children. But because God loves us with a, a deep and a passionate love, just like a father has for his child, he will, just like a good human father, sometimes discipline us for our good. We read these words of Hebrews, part of which is a quote from Proverbs in the Old Testament. The, the writer says this, You have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship, therefore, as discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? So just like a parent might sometimes smack the hand of a young child who's reaching out to kind of put their hand into a naked flame, into a fire. So God sometimes will bring uh, difficulties and problems into our lives to teach us lessons to keep away from sin. 
The same passage in Hebrews goes on to say this, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. God is trying to shape us and make us and mold us to be more like Jesus. No discipline, the writer says, seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. That, that smack on the hand of that young child doesn't seem very nice if, if that's all you saw, but actually when you realize that it's to stop the child putting his hand in the fire, then suddenly it becomes a loving, gentle, gracious, loving thing to do, doesn't it? God's discipline in our lives might be to teach us not to sin and therefore to live the way that he wants us to do. So sometimes bad things will come into our lives as a, as a means of disciplining us to get us to turn away from sin and to turn back to the way that God wants us to live. And, and, and sometimes bad things happen because God is disciplining us to learn us to trust, to, to learn us to, to sort of trust in him more, that we learn to trust in him more and to depend on him more because we're kind of our default mind certainly is is just to kind of live lives our way isn't it and, and we go wandering off and do things our way when God wants us to come back and live his way God's discipline is always for our good bad things also happen because we're in a spiritual battle with spiritual forces of evil and, and this is the one that we tend to overlook the most especially here in the west we, we have a kind of 300 years of of scientific reasoning and, and, and the enlightenment which we need to kind of debunk a little bit from our heads because we tend to view everything from a rational point of view and the reality is there is a whole spiritual world going on and Paul writes about this in Ephesians 6 he says put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms so we have a real and a literal enemy who will do whatever he can. If you love Jesus, you have an enemy. He's called Satan, and he will do whatever he can to attack you, to knock you off course, to pull you down, to stop you living for him, to stop you serving, whatever that looks like. He will do whatever he can to prevent you from living for Jesus. The last thing that Satan wants is you living for God and serving him, and he'll do whatever he can to knock you out of the race. And we need to understand that if we're going to follow Jesus, then we're going to face all kinds of problems, of hardships, and of opposition in our lives. It, it's an inevitable part of the cost of following Jesus. Spiritual warfare is real. We have a, a real, literal enemy who will do whatever he can to knock us out of the game. David seems pretty certain that for him and for Israel, the problems that they were facing, this, this devastating invasion from the Moabites in the southeast, was because of some kind of sin. And maybe it was. And he seems pretty clear that he and the nation were, that, that he was king of were experiencing discipline from God in some way or other. And, and yet in the midst of these awful problems that Israel was facing, David knew that God was the solution. David knew that in the midst of all the terrible stuff that was happening in his life and in, and in the whole nation's life, God was the answer to his problems. Look at what he says in verse 4. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. Now this verse is apparently in the Hebrew very difficult to translate. I, I, I don't speak any Hebrew, but apparently it's a very difficult verse to translate. But it refers to the signal banner that they would have uh, raised on the walls of Jerusalem in times of attack. And, and the idea was that the banner was a warning sign for the people of Israel to flee to the safety of the walled city of Jerusalem. And David in these verses is kind of painting a picture of God as the one who is the, the, both the banner but also the safety that Israel needed. He's the one who is the solution to their problem. They needed to run to him like a banner that's raised up in the sky and seek his help. 
people could go looking for all kinds of solutions to the, to the problems of this invasion, but it was God who would save them. It was God who would deliver them if they trusted in him. And, and the same is true for us, isn't it? As we find ourselves in different circumstances, whether it's health or, or, or our finances or relationships or family or, or jobs, when bad things happen, and, and in your life right now, there might be all kind of bad things going on, I don't know, but when bad things happen, we can and we often do go looking for all kinds of solutions in all kinds of places and sometimes with all kinds of people, but God actually wants us to run to him. He wants to be the banner that we fling, that we cling to, that we flee to, that we pursue. He wants to be the one that we pursue. Proverbs 18 verse 10 says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. In the midst of the battle or of our struggles, God promises to be that kind of rallying point where we can find strength and protection. He doesn't promise to solve all our problems, but he does promise to be that, that banner that we run to, that strong tower, that refuge where we can go and find his love and his care and his help. At some point in this national disaster, God spoke to David, probably through a prophet at the tabernacle, which wasn't at that point in Jerusalem, it was just near Jerusalem, and probably through this prophet, he spoke to David, and this is what he said. God spoke these words, in triumph, I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin. On Edom, I toss my sandals, over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Now, the references in this verse are kind of lost on us a little bit at first, but if you look on a map as to where all these actual places are and the Israelite tribes that God mentions in this verse, such as Manasseh and Ephraim, what you find is that God is basically saying is that the nation of Israel is safe in his hands. The nation of Israel and its future was safe in God's hand. God was king. God was sovereign. God was in charge. God was sovereign over Israel. The locations of these places and, and tribes basically geographically describe the whole of the nation of Israel from north to south and from east to west. And, and God was saying that Israel was safe in his hands despite current appearances to the contrary. It looked and it probably felt like everything was completely going to pot. But actually God is saying to David, I am still in charge. I am still in control. Despite how things look and feel, Israel is mine. I've got you. What God had promised to Israel, what God had promised to the great ancestors of the nation of Israel, men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and, and Moses, what God had promised, he would do and will do. Whereas the enemies of Israel, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines, they were all under his judgment. He uses words like they're his wash basins, kind of you know, derogatory statements. It's going to be where he throws his shoes to the slaves to kind of deal with. These are kind of pictures to, to, to emphasize the fact that God was going to deal with these other countries that were enemies of Israel. They were all under his judgment and one day would be destroyed. And, and this message from God to David via one of the prophets at the tabernacle in Jerusalem w would have been a great source of strength. And that's why David... Um, captured it in this psalm and, and recorded it for us. This, this message that comes from one of the prophets. It's a great source of strength and comfort. God is still in control. Despite how things look right now, despite appearances to the contrary, God is still sovereign. God was in control. God was still sovereign. And, and that was what David needed to hear. And like David, that's the message that we too need to hear, isn't it? Especially when bad things are happening to us. And it feels like God has rejected us. It feels like we've been shaken to our very core. It feels like maybe our lives are fractured and, and we're staggering around like we're drunk on wine, just really not sure what's happening to us. 
despite appearances to the contrary, let me tell you this morning, God is still on the throne. He's still on the throne of your life. He is still sovereign. He has not rejected you, despite what you might be feeling. He has not rejected you. He has not abandoned you. He still loves you with a passion. And God is still good. Amen? God is good no matter what is happening in life. That is his nature. God is good all the time. Let me read these words to you from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. And if this morning, if you're feeling like David in this psalm, these words are for you, okay? These words. So listen, if your life is remotely like David's this morning, if that's your experience at the moment, these words are from God to you, okay? This is what Paul writes. This is in the Living Translation. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's, God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows that all, all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scripture says, for your sake we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. With the words of, of God ringing in his ears and, and with the reassurance of, his, of, of God's, sovereignty, God's sovereignty in his life that God was still in control despite appearances to the contrary, David then says this in verse 9, Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? The Edomites were the nation down in the southeast that had mounted this surprise attack. 
uh, whilst David and his generals were up in the northeast fighting the Syrians. And the capital city of the Edomites, there's a picture of it here for you, was apparently pretty much impregnable. It, it, was, it was kind of hewn out a rock and it was impossible to attack. Nobody could get near it. This is what remains of where the city would have been on this rock face. It was totally undefeatable, totally immovable, totally impossible to deal with, impregnable militarily. But God, uh, uh, David turns once again to God and he puts his trust in God again. And in answer to his own question about who would help him conquer this immovable object, he says this, is it not you, O God, you who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies, give us aid against the enemy. For the help of man is worthless. With God we shall gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. The temptation for David, just as it is for us, was to try to do things in his own strength. Maybe he could get the help of Egypt. The Israelites often did that. They went looking to make alliances with powers that they shouldn't have done instead of trusting in God. David ultimately knew that there was no point in doing that. There's no point in putting his trust in anybody other than God himself. And so he renewed his faith in God and trusted him to give him the help that he so desperately needed and the nation so desperately needed to defeat the enemy and conquer this impregnable fortress. The heading for this psalm says this, for the director of music to the tune of the Lily of the Covenant, a mikam of David for teaching. This was a poem. It was a song that the people of Israel afterwards then sung as part of their worship. But it was also intended to be a teaching resource. It is for teaching. It was a poem full of life lessons. So what was it teaching? Well, I guess if we had to boil this psalm right down, we could say that it's all about trusting God in the midst of problems. It's all about trusting God even when everything goes to pot. We can be believers in Jesus and followers of Jesus, and yet it's so easy, isn't it, to put our, our faith and our trust in all sorts of other things and other people when we face problems. And this morning, and I just encourage you, we need to trust in God. Put our trust in God. Write that on your outline this morning. We need to put our trust in God rather than trusting in uh, other people or other things or in our own strength. That's the temptation, isn't it? So, on, so often is to trust in our own abilities and our own strength. And instead, we need to make that conscious choice to trust in God. We can put our faith in politicians or in our pensions or in our salaries, our jobs, our qualifications, our, our parents, our husband or wife if we're married, or, or maybe even our, in our kids and maybe in our friends. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with any of those things. But ultimately, as David says, the help of man is worthless. The help of man is worthless. In Psalm 146, we read these words, Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plan comes to nothing. When God spoke to David and was reassuring him that he was in control and that he was sovereign, he said these words. He said, Judah is my scepter. Judah is my scepter. Now, Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the kings of Israel came from the tribe of Judah. David was the first, the, the first king of Israel the, from the tribe of Judah, and he carried the royal scepter as a symbol of his power. And a scepter is a kind of decorated staff that would be, and still is, carried by kings and queens uh, as a symbol of their sovereignty on special occasions. A picture there of a queen doing just that at a coronation. David was the first king uh, from the royal tribe of Judah. And it was one of David's descendants, Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, a thousand years later who would be the final king of Israel, the scepter, the one who would come 
In fact, he wasn't just the king of Israel. He was the king of kings. He's the one the Bible calls the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Lions are often in the Bible and today still used as symbols of royal power. We have lions on the, both the English and Scottish flag, don't we? They're, they're symbols of royal power. And Jesus is described in the Bible as the lion, the king of the tribe of Judah, the greatest king. And in this psalm, we just get a little hint from God that one day he's going to send this special king, this special anointed king, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's going to send the scepter. He's going to send the king of kings, descended from David physically, but God, the one who is God, become man. Firstly, to die on the cross to deal with our sins, which he's now done, and then one day to come again and to rule and reign for all eternity. You know, maybe this morning that you're facing all kinds of problems in your life. And I don't know what's go going on in your life. It could be anything from work problems, family, uh, relationship, health, financial. And maybe this morning as you're facing all those problems, it, it may just be that you've never actually trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning. You've been trying to be king of your own life. I'll do it my way. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to be king. And, and, and Jesus comes to earth and he says, I need to be your king. I need you to surrender your life to me. Let me be in charge of your life. Can I encourage you this morning, if, if, if that's you, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your savior, this great one who was promised, the king of kings, to, to, to this morning come perhaps for the very first time and, and bow the knee and accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your king and surrender your life to him. You know, he loves you with a passion. And he died for you to deal with your sins, and he wants, you, he wants to be your Lord, he wants to be your Savior, and he wants to walk with you through those struggles that you will face and perhaps are facing this morning. Until one day he'll come again, and he'll take all those that have ever trusted in him to be with himself forever in a world free from sin, free from pain, free from death. No more problems, no more bad stuff. It might sound like pie in the sky, but it's not, it's true. Jesus is going to come and going to make a whole new world. And those who love him and have put their trust in him will dwell with him forever. No more sin. No more pain. No more suffering. Sin dealt with. Satan dealt with forever. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's just spend a few moments in, in quiet reflection. Maybe you just want to bow your head and close your eyes. I just invite you to, wherever you're at this morning, to just to bring your heart to God. It might just be a very small thing. It might be a whole major situation you're facing just to kind of bring your heart, or, or maybe for, if for you this morning, life is all good, well, that's great, but I'm sure you can think of other people that you know whose lives are not so good right now, who just really need the love of God, that touch of God's spirit in their lives. So let's just spend a few moments and, and just reflect and, and just bring your own hearts to God this morning.
going to listen to a song now that's going to be up on the screen and, and played over the PA. It's a song written, performed by Michael W. Smith called Sovereign. And, and as we listen to these words, what, whatever your situation is this morning, can I encourage you, perhaps even just during the song, to reach out to God afresh. And, and if you want to chat with me afterwards, or Joel, or Stuart, then, or, or Pete, then please do that. We'd love to chat with you and pray with you further. We're going to listen to this song now. Thanks. strength within the sorrow there is beauty in our tears and you meet us in our morning with a love that cast out fear you are working in sanctifying us when beyond our understanding you're teaching us to trust <laughs> 